Well, good morning and welcome, Wayside. Wasn't that great worship? Thank you, Doug, and your whole worship team. Thank you. We don't say it often enough, but they're practicing behind the scenes, and we are just so very thankful for them, and just even leading our hearts to prepare to hear the Word of God, but we also just heard the Word of God in, in the lyrics and in what we just sang. Um, I'm glad to be here. This is starting our second in our summer series of, of messages on outsiders, on people who look like they're, they don't belong into the family of God, but, but God has a heart for the outsider. And, um, and I just love that about the Lord because I was an outsider. Um, over the course of the 37 years of ministry that Brenda and I have been full-time, uh, we've had the joy and the delight of traveling to a number of places for ministry. And, and let me explain joy and delight. Uh, we had the joy and delight because where I was raised, I was raised in the mountains in northern Pennsylvania on a dairy farm. And on a dairy farm, you milk the cows every day of every week, of every month, of every year. You milk those stinking cows forever. And at 5 a.m. in the morning and at 5 p.m. in the evening, we milked cows. Now, think about that, 5 a.m., 5 p.m. That doesn't leave a whole lot of time for travel, does it? And so farm guys, maybe we could go up to the lake or maybe we go down to the fair for a few hours, but then it's time to get back and milk the cows. And one of my worst days, one of the days I hated the most of school was the very first day because usually one of the teachers would say something like, what did you do this summer? And then we called them the townies because we were the, out in the boonies. We were the boondockers. We were out there. We would call them the townies. And one townie after another would get up. They weren't farmers. And they would say, oh, we went to Colorado. And, and we went up to Canada fishing. And we went down to the Jersey Shore. We went to Disneyland. And then they would get to me. And they would say, so what, have you, what did you do this summer, Walt? And my answer was, I milked cows. I put bales of hay in a barn. And I weeded the biggest garden on the face of this earth. <laughs> and so you can see why the thought of being able to travel and even doing it in service of the Lord is just a delight. Well, some of the trips we've taken are, are pure ministry uh, one time, Brenda and I went to Milan, Italy, and there we worked with a team of folks who were evangelizing this great city of Milan, and uh, our church supported them. It, it was a wonderful time, two weeks of just doing evangelism and blessing th those missionaries that were there. And then I also had a chance to go to the Ukraine, to the far southeast region of the Ukraine, and teach and, um, and help in the seminary training of local pastors, and, and it was delightful. You know, Brenda and I have had a number of um, trips where we've gone and taught the Word of God in some unique places. We've taught in Greece in the footsteps of Paul. We've taught in Turkey at the churches of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we've been able to go those. And, of course, uh, we've gone six times to teach in Jordan and now over 30 times to teach in Israel. And if you, that interests you or piques your curiosity at all, 
Next May 31st, a group will be leaving Wayside to go to Israel and teach the Word of God there where it happened. Well, in all these trips and all these experiences, I, I never have really felt like a foreigner. You know, I, I never just felt like a foreigner because I was always accompanied by a guide or a translator. I was always among the people of God who welcomed me in. And I always knew, you know, I'm not staying here. I'm just here temporarily. I, I'm, I'm not a foreigner. I'm just a tourist. I'm just a traveling through. And each of these trips, I, I would say, I did understand even the struggles of foreigners. But I did have an opportunity firsthand to witness foreigners in the United States of America and their struggles that they face. Ten years ago, I was uh, contacted by the Chinese Christian Union Church in downtown Chinatown, which is in the very center of Chinatown. And uh, they have three congregations with three different languages, um, Cantonese, Mandarin, and English. And they asked me if I would come and if I would, for a year, I would preach at the, spoiler alert, English congregation because my Mandarin and Cantonese both are a little lacking. I, I do know one of the great phrases of, 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 you have to know if, if you go in, if, into a Chinese restaurant. Dim sum. <laughs> is anyone praising God with me? It is life-changing. Just, think, just check it out. Dim sum. Well, anyway, I started at this church and I learned so much about Chinese and Chinese-American culture and um, learned about ABCs, American-born Chinese, who their parents came over and they've now plugged in and, and some of the differences between them and their parents' generation. Um, the other thing that I experienced is there was a wonderful place that the church had just a, a few houses down, a few buildings down from the church was this iconic structure, the Poi Tuck Center. And really, it symbolizes Chinatown as, as the most Chinese-looking-like building. And in this Poitouk Center, this, the Chinese Christian Union Church had an immigrant assistance center. And there they would teach um, English as a second language, ESL. they teach keyboarding and computers. They would teach the general educational development, or GEDs. And they would teach citizenship classes preparing these legal immigrants to become citizens. And I just loved going and watching what happened, and even had a chance to, at times to go and visit in homes of some of these immigrants, these foreigners who were living in America. And it was eye-opening. But, but one of the things I heard over and over again, and one of the things I still remember, is repeatedly they would say they knew they were foreigners, but they knew that outside of the walls of CCUC and the Poitouk Center, they would be vulnerable. They were at risk in the city of Chicago because they didn't know the language, they didn't know their way around. They were at risk. And after 15 years of living in Chicago and now five years talking to my friends back there, guess what? It's not just foreigners that are at risk in Chicago anymore. It's not just foreigners and the reason relates back to our chapter and our, what we'll be studying today. And the reason is because in Chicago now, every man is doing that which is right in his own eyes. And this leads us to the plot of the book of Ruth. 
Um, Ruth, this love story. And by the way, who doesn't like a good love story? At least I'll put that hand down now. No, no. As a matter of fact, I think I just saw an elbow. I just think I saw... But we love a good love story. And the book of Ruth is that and so much more. But it's set in a very dark and a very terrible time. It's set during the period of the judges. Um, And we learn this from the opening verse. It came to pass in the days when the judges judged. And the book of Judges stands in stark contrast to the book of Joshua. Because in the book of Joshua, they were able to the leadership of a godly man to conquer the land through the trust in the power of God Almighty. Joshua largely is a book of victory, not so Judges. Judges is a book of defeat. And in seven distinct cycles from sin and oppression to repentance and restoration, and then over again, we sin, we're oppressed. God hears us. He restores us through a judge. Seven times that cycle repeats itself. Um, And in the book of Judges, two verses repeatedly occur, and they're instructive of us what a time is like. And the first is this. Um, In those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There was no godly leader motivating and telling the people, no, this is the wrong way. This is the right way. And then the second verse beside it, Um, The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And don't miss that there's a direct connection between the absence of law and godly leadership and the phenomena such as violence and brutal contact. Don't, Don't miss that. Don't miss that. If the leadership, if the government, if the police force... If the military is not being led in a godly direction and not engaged, bad things happen. Um, The law restrains the wild side of man. And the rabbi said this, pray for the welfare of the government. For if it were not for fear of it, one person would eat the other alive. And it's not surprising, for example, that during this period of the judges, one of the darkest, most tragic, most brutal scenes occurs in the whole Bible, the Battle of Gibeah, the most brutal rape scene and massacre affair in the Bible. It got so bad, beloved, it got so bad that 11 of the tribes came together and said, tribe of Benjamin, you need to listen to us and repent. And the evildoers that committed that rape and and did that harm, they need to be punished. And the tribe of Benjamin says, come and get us. No, we're not repenting. We're a powerful tribe. Militarily, we'll take you all on. And that's what happens. And the tribe of Benjamin is almost wiped out. And it's into this chaotic scene that Ruth, the foreigner, arrives in Israel. You know, it's interesting. Nine times in these four chapters of the book of Ruth, she's going to be identified as a foreigner as an outsider, it's clearly reflected in the text. Six more times, the land of Moab is mentioned. And we're only going to look at three of these mentions, these nine statements of of Ruth being the foreigner. The first is in Ruth chapter 1, verse 22. So Naomi returned, and with her, Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. 
And then verses, chapter 2, verse 10. And then Ruth fell on her face, bowing to the ground. And she said to him, to Boaz, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? And then repeat in just three verses later, then Ruth said, I found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly. Literally, you've spoken to my heart, is the Hebrew. The heart of your servant, though I'm not like one of your servants or your female servants. And you just wonder, you know, did Ruth look a little different as a foreigner? Were Ruth's clothes a little different? Probably not. Could Ruth understand Hebrew? Well, sure, she's been living for 10 years plus uh, in a Hebrew family. That, that was their first language, and she knew some Hebrew. But did she have a foreign accent? Most probably she did. And was Ruth familiar and had been raised from a, a youth in the teaching of the Word of God? No. Her teaching was the Moabite religion until she met this family from Israel. If Ruth was living among us today, how would we categorize her? As an illegal or a legal immigrant? As a refugee? As an infiltrator? As a work seeker? How would we categorize her? But most definitely, she would be looked at as the other, the outsider, not just this nice photogenic foreigner that occurs in in different ad campaigns. Ruth was different. She was not just a foreigner. She was the ultimate of foreigners, not born in the land, not native to the language, not instructed in the teaching of the Lord. Ruth was outside. And yet even in the midst of sharing all that, it's interesting that she from a hostile nation, according to Jewish sages of the Mishnah and the Talmud, Ruth was declared the great-granddaughter of Eglon, king of Moab. And at that point, you say, Eglon, king of Moab, I don't remember that. Well, Judges chapter 3, Eglon, king of Moab, is, is brutalizing the nation of Israel. And a judge is sent there. And Ehud, in Judges chapter 3, takes a sword, and he sticks it in Eglon's belly and disembowels him. That's one of the scenes that our, the youth, the junior high, we used to call them the middle school boys, loved that story there. And so with that, Ruth had every good reason. She was supposedly his granddaughter, and she had every good reason to hate the Jews fiercely. But instead, she chose the exact opposite. Ruth who had every good reason, preferred the warmth of devotion to Naomi, to her God, and eventually to Boaz over the chill of alienation and hatred. Ruth has much to teach us today. And so as we continue in this message, there are going to be four words that begin with C. I don't usually do this. Um, It's kind of cute by some people, but for me, they just characterized it. It it pointed out who Ruth was and how she lived before others, even when she was considered a foreigner. And the first C is this, compassion. Ruth was a person with compassion. She had compassion on Naomi for 10 years. 
before they even left Moab, when Naomi was an outsider and a foreigner, Ruth loved her mother-in-law and had compassion on her. In verse 14 of the first chapter, it says this, and they raised their voices, the the two daughters-in-law, raised their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. And the idea is, and she then left. But Ruth clung to her. Ruth wailed and cried with Naomi. And in her anguish, she clung to her. And she says, you're not going to Bethlehem without me. I'm in. And I love that, that the clinging aspect and the compassion she has. Um, the end of this chapter, chapter 1, has this, says this. So they both went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, they, all the city was stirred because of him. And the women said, is this Naomi? But she said to them, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Instead, call me Mara, for the Lord Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full with a husband and two boys. And the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, Naomi, since the, the Lord has testified against me? The Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. As a result of a terrible loss that Naomi had experienced, the loss of her husband, the loss of her two sons, Naomi attempted to change her name from pleasant one to bitter. And that's what she says, from now on, call me Mara, bitter. And yet I find it instructive that for the rest of the time she's mentioned in chapters 2, 3, and 4, guess what? The text never calls her Mara because God knows who she ultimately is. She's Naomi. She's a pleasant woman. And in the midst of this, we give some slack. We have, can have understanding and empathy that, that she's in, in a hard, depressed discouraged and somewhat desperate state at this point. We give Naomi slack. That's how she's feeling. But I'm just reminded, Naomi doesn't know what God is about to do. And guess what? You and I don't know what God is about to do because God is about to do something amazing. You know, the problem, the real problem that Naomi has as we get to this place in the story at the end of chapter one, when she says, I went out full, came back empty, call me Mara because the Lord's dealt bitterly with me. The problem that she really has is that she has not read Ruth chapter four. (laughs) She doesn't know the rest of the story. She doesn't know what God is fixing to do. So the first is commitment and compassion on the outsider. And next is covenant. And covenant's expressed in the book of Ruth to Naomi before the Lord Almighty in a binding contract ending in a curse. If Ruth breaks her word, she will experience death. And this is similar to the marriage vows of a covenant commitment to fidelity within a marriage. And remember, as we claim, forsaking all others and for richer, for poorer, we end that with till death do us part. 
Listen as I read this beautiful statement of faithfulness and covenant that Ruth said to Naomi. Do not plead with me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you sleep, I will sleep. Your people shall be my people. Your God is now my God. And where you die, where I will die. And there I will be buried beside you. And may the Lord do to me worse if anything but death separates me from you. And Naomi, does Naomi get it? Naomi gets it. This wonderful daughter-in-law has made an amazing covenant, a commitment. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her about it. You know, this is one of the most beautiful expressions in the whole Bible of love and commitment and covenant from one person to another, from a foreigner to an Israelite. And I just love this. And, and, and we, we kind of can gloss over this. But think about this. Ruth is about to leave behind her nation. Would that be impactful? But not only is she leaving her nation, she's going to be leaving her family. Would that be impactful? And not only leaving her family, she's going to leave her religion that she was raised in. Ruth is heading off into the unknown. And she's determined to go with her. And this idea reminds me of, of, it seems like Ruth is pushing all the chips in. Do do you know what that expression is about? I've never played poker. I'm I'm afraid that if I ever played, like, for cash, I would, like, get addicted and do some terrible things. But I've never played poker. Uh, but, But every so often I'm drawn in on ESP and they'll have the World Series of Poker. And I just watch what's happening and I, I think, oh, this is that strategy and this is it. But my favorite scene in all the time when the people are playing poker is when one individual takes all of his chips and shoves them into the middle. And he's all in. She's all in. And we recognize that tension begins to build, doesn't it? And we recognize really soon as those cards are revealed, either something very good is going to happen to this guy or something very bad is going to happen to this guy. And that's with Ruth. Going along with her mother, mother mother-in-law, who um, has very few rights and privileges, not having male protection and provision in a time when everyone is doing that which is right in their own eyes. And repeatedly in the book of Judges, there's stories of raping and, and unjust believable sorrow. And in the midst of this, Ruth makes this amazing commitment. I, I, I love this. As she's all in, and the Hebrew word that's used repeatedly is hesed. And it's an interesting word because it's used of the Lord. If you would go to Psalm 136, don't, you don't have to go there. I'm just going to read the first three verses. This is about the Lord being a covenant-keeping God. It says this in Psalm 136, Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his faithfulness, his hesed, is everlasting. Verse 2, give thanks to the God of gods, for his faithfulness is everlasting. Verse 3, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his faithfulness is everlasting. And then for 26 times in this one chapter, we're reminded God's hesed faithfulness, his covenant-keeping love, his loving kindness is everlasting. 
It's everlasting. This is such an important concept that the Jewish people, they have a song that they regularly sing, Hodula Adonai. Would you like me to sing it for you? Okay, I got the same response in the first, so I'm not. I'm not. But it goes like this. Hodula Adonai Kitov Kila Olam Hasdu. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is Tov. He's good. Actually, he's very good. And his hesed, loving kindness, his loyal covenant-keeping love, how long will that last? Forever and ever. The Hebrew, ha'olam, unto the eternals. Forever. And, and I, I love this, that this is repeated about God. But not only should this describe God, this should be reflected in us. And that's what we're going to find out about these characters, especially Boaz and Ruth. They are Hesed kind of people. And, and the text highlights and identifies them as covenant-keeping kinds of people and displaying faithfulness and mercy. Naomi pronounces a blessing on her daughters in chapter 1. And, and even as she does this, she says, Go return each of you to your mother's house. Girls, g- go back home. It's, it's going to be a hard track, and I don't know what's going to happen when we get to Israel. Go back home. You're safer. It's easier to do that. And may the Lord deal hesed. May he deal his kindness, his covenant-keeping love with you as you have dealt hesed, covenant-keeping love, with the dead, my, my two sons, and you've shown that to me. Naomi here is declaring that Ruth is a Hesed kind of woman. And then Ruth comes home with an amazing mount of grain in chapter 2 after gleaning in Boaz's field. And Naomi gets it. She's like, wow, that's way too much grain. Where have you been? She says, well, I'm in the field of Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness, his Hesed from either the living or the dead. Again, Naomi said to her, this man is our relative. He is one of our redeemers. Naomi not only has been declaring Ruth is a Hesed kind of person, now Naomi says Boaz is a Hesed kind of person. And just even with that, the note, we're going to learn in chapter 4 that there's another kinsman redeemer. There's another relative that could redeem him, and he's not been doing anything. He's been sitting on the sidelines. He hasn't been protecting these two young women, widows. He has not been providing for them. He's just sitting on his hands. And that's hinted at here in this text. And and Boaz, this statement that he's a a possible kinsman redeemer. In the Hebrew, the word is goel. And goel is an interesting word. It talks in Deuteronomy chapter 25 that this individual has to be ready, willing, and able to redeem that which was lost. But then the individual has to pay the price to redeem it. It's not good enough just to say, yeah, I want it. You have to pay a price. And that's what the kinsman redeemer was supposed to do. And that's why Boaz mans up and says, I'm I'm willing to do that. But the kinsman redeemer, the Goel, isn't just a picture of Boaz, right? Because there's an even greater kinsman redeemer. Do you know who he is? He is ready, willing, and able, and he chose to pay the price. This is spoken of in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. He is ready, willing, and able to redeem all mankind. 
And he pays the price to accomplish this redemption. He pays it by sprinkling the nations clean with his blood and and by being pierced through for our transgressions, for my transgressions. And having all the sin of all the world laid on him, the sin bearer. And this accomplishes redemption for any who come to him by faith. What a wonderful picture. What a wonderful God that we serve. And what a delight we have in our kinsman redeemer. Finally, in Ruth 3.10, Boaz says, now he's going to declare Ruth May the Lord be blessed. May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness, Hesed, is better than the first, the Hesed she expressed towards Naomi and her late husband. By not going after young men, whether rich or poor. Here Boaz is declaring that Ruth, and and delighting in the fact that Ruth has come to him and he's offered and said, would you be our kinsman redeemer? And in the midst of that, that offer, Boaz takes it up. And, and this is important because we're going to find out there in chapter 4, there is a closer kinsman redeemer, and he's a weasel. Now, if you look in chapter 4, you're not going to see the word weasel in the Hebrew text, right? But, but he is the kind of guy that he hasn't been providing for these widows. He hasn't been protecting them. He really doesn't care about anything except his own financial estate. He says, I can't do this. It will jeopardize my inheritance. Well, the Bible says you're supposed to do this. The Bible says you're supposed to show Hesed love. And the guy says, I'm out of here. Go ahead, Boaz, you do it. Ruth and Boaz are a Hesed couple, a match made in heaven. And at this point, I normally start singing from Fiddler on the Roof. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a... Find me a, find, catch me a. Okay, some of you need to repent and go watch Fiddler on the Roof. (laughs) But this this is a wonderful concept. This is a a match made in heaven. And the text goes out of its ways to say, God is a covenant-keeping God. He's faithful. He's loving. He's kind. He's merciful. And you know what? So are Ruth and Boaz. I love that. This idea that that Ruth could have had another option of a younger, richer guy, but she goes with Boaz. Um, This requires immense determination. And with that, the the recognition that um, Ruth was determined. She was committed. She was going to follow through on the covenant. Um, Ruth was going to prove her covenant commitment literally and with perspiration and with effort as she traveled down out of Moab through the Moabite wilderness at least a 4,000-foot drop, she crosses the Dead Sea, the lowest place on the face of the earth. And again, hopefully next June 5th, you'll be with me at the Dead Sea. Start saving your shekels now, okay? But but crosses the Dead Sea, the lowest place on the face of the earth, 1,410 feet below sea level. And then she will cross that And she will go up through this most inhospitable place. And eventually she'll get to these springs that are there, the springs of the wild goat, Ein Gedi. And from there she'll travel up this route and she'll have to travel up at least 3,000 feet in, in elevation. 
And I find it interesting that in the midst of this, if he, if this is probably a distance of anywhere from 50 to 80 miles, depending on where Ruth and Naomi lived in Moab. And with that, we have the recognition that, that this is going to be a long trip. This is not on paved roads. This is, has a lot of ups and downs and a lot of stone. It'll take over 60 hours of walking, usually considered five or six days in this kind of terrain. Ruth was determined to keep her covenant vows. Compassion, covenant. Now, the, the third C. The third C is character. And the text repeatedly tells us that Ruth is a woman of character. I'm just going to read some of these verses and just talk. Ruth is caring and polite. Ruth the Moabite has said to Naomi, please let me go in the field and glean among the ears of grain, following one in whose eyes I may found favor. And she, Naomi, said to her, go, my daughter. Ruth politely asks that she be allowed to go and glean in the field and get food for them to eat. Because likely what they had brought with them from Moab for that journey is depleted. And she goes. But then the text also said she's very hardworking. Chapter 2, verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. And then she beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley, about double the normal amount um, that you would expect for two women gleaning in the field. Just an amazing blessing. But then she's also humble. She takes instruction of others. And this is, is the instruction that she's given by Naomi. Then Ruth and Moabite said, furthermore, he, Boaz, said to me, you are to stay close to my servants until they have finished at my harvest. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, it's good, my daughter, that you go out with these young men, women so that others do not assault you in the field. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. She lived with her mother-in-law. And again, in a time when every man is doing that, which is right, really the text here doesn't just say you'll be assaulted. It's, it's a Hebrew idiom, you will be fallen upon. And really what it means is you'll be raped. I mean, the text, this is a terrible time. And yet in the midst of this, something is revealed. And that's our find, the sea of character. Character is revealed in the faithfulness to God. Character is revealed in Naomi's faithfulness, Ruth's faithfulness, and Boaz. And the question I ask is, is that true of you and of, and of me? If I were to ask your spouse or your children, or your co-workers, or your neighbors, or acquaintances, if I were to ask them about you, what would they say? What would they say? And hopefully they would say what Boaz says, now my daughter, do not fear, I will do for you whatever you say, for all my people in the whole city know you are a woman of excellence. We'd pray they'd say that about us. Well, the last C is commitment resulting in blessing. And I love in Ruth chapter 4, verse 17, the neighbor women gave him, Ruth's son, a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then continuing on in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, that this is the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, but digging down into that genealogy in verses 5 and 6, Solomon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed 
by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David the king. These two Hesed kind of people, a match made in heaven, are going to become a link in the chain of faith that not just leads to Israel's greatest king, David, but leads to the great king that we await, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. King of kings and Lord of lords. That's who we await. Not the babe born in a manger, but now the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's who we await. Compassion for others. Covenant relationship with God and with others. Character, plight, hardworking. Commitment and obedience resulting in blessing and legacy. And these are qualities which transform Ruth the foreigner into a child of God, adopted into his family. And why is this so important to a 21st century hearer? Why, why do we even care? And it's because this, we, all of us, were foreigners. We, all of us, were outsiders. The Romans 5.10 says it this way, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, having been redeemed, how much more shall we be saved through this life? By faith, we have been redeemed. Our kinsman redeemer has accomplished it. And continuing on in Ephesians chapter two, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Therefore, remember, you previously, the Gentiles of the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the people of Israel, strangers to the covenants and to his promises, having no hope without God in this world, but now in Christ Jesus, who previously you were far away from, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one. See, we are all foreigners. And in conclusion, I just want to ask each of us two questions. Two questions. First is this. Have you moved by faith in your, in your head and in your heart from being an outsider to being reconciled to God Almighty and be made a child of God? Have you done that? Have you personalized the redemption that is available through Jesus Christ? Romans 10, 9 and 10 says this, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. Right now, you can express that and I'll end with a prayer doing that. But I have a second question before we go there. Are you a Christ follower? Do you claim to be a Christian? Do you know this passage, is this what is displayed in your life? Character, covenant, compassion, and a conviction that leads to eternal change. Um, if not, if these aren't characteristics that mark your life, not perfectly, but increasingly, and consistently, if they don't mark you, would you be willing to ask God to help you to, to have that be marks in your life, to change the way you live and think and act? Let's pray together. 
Father God, for any that are here today or listening in online who want to move from being an outsider, an enemy of yours, to being reconciled to you, the Lord God Almighty, and being made a child through the great Redeemer, Jesus Christ. I ask that they would, in faith, just say a prayer, speak to you and say something like this. Lord, I need you. Thank you for offering redemption. Thank you for being my kinsman redeemer. Now, Lord God Almighty, make me a child of God. Jesus, our great kinsman redeemer, rescue me today. And for every Christ follower, Spirit of God, would you empower and enable and give us all a heart to consistently and increasingly display the the characteristics of a Christ follower, compassion for others, a covenant relationship with God and with those around us, godly character that can be seen by a watching world, and a level of commitment and obedience that results in blessing to others now and a lasting legacy for all eternity. I pray this in the powerful name of our kinsman redeemer, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and God's people said, amen. Well, thank you for coming today and hope you have a great Sunday. And we have one last hit, one last worship song to sing. Thank you.